Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Block, and this is episode 20. Yay, 20. Pause for celebration. Welcome back. For whatever reason. I don't know. I don't even celebrate my own birthday, man. Like, after 21, I just stopped caring, stopped celebrating, because I'm just like, what does the new year bring? 25, I could rent a car, and I'm just like, okay, that's all right, but you don't really hit any milestones after 21, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm just like, I'm chilling about this whole... I mean, 20th episode, it's kind of hard to believe we've been at this for nearly six months, and that's kind of cool. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this is episode number 20. We're not doing anything special for this episode, but uh, just want to let you guys know, it is episode number 20, and do want to express gratitude for you guys sticking with us this long. This has been a great journey thus far, and we look forward to sharing another 20 and more episodes with you guys. Um, we're just glad we're still here. We're just glad to still be with y'all. Yeah, we're still glad. We're glad that you're still here. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Derek, how's your week, man? It's good. Yeah. Been good. Nothing eventful, nothing exciting? Well, just a lot of learning, a lot of studying. Of course. That is what Derek does. A lot of learning, a lot of studying. Last time I asked him how his week was going or what he was doing for fun that day or some kind of holiday, he was like, yeah, I've been just studying the scriptures. Like, Derek, this is what he does for fun. Derek studies the scriptures. Derek is, it is always fun. A, yes, it is fun. You know, reading the scriptures in Greek is like having sex without a condom. Okay. You've got a much more direct connection there. Yep. Without anything in between. And there it is. Maybe you're going to edit that out. No, I'm going to keep that in. That's, <laughs> that's gold right there. I do not recommend having sex without a condom, but I do recommend. <laughs> Reading the New Testament in Greek. Yeah. We're actually going to be, I don't know uh, what you're going to be talking about for the Come Follow Me, but there are some pretty significant uh, things in the Greek that I was hoping mm-hmm. you might expound okay, on. Sure. Okay, So we can we can talk about that when we get there. But anyway, with, with that, let's uh, talk about what's been going on this week. Uh, just a couple things we want to talk about. There is a, well, this past week was September 11th. This marks the 18th anniversary of september 11th 2001 the terror attacks in new york and on the pentagon um significant because now that it is 18 years we can legitimately say that kids born on september 11th are now old enough to in a sense like in essence join the war that began on the day they were born which is kind of crazy when you think about it been at it for a long time and uh, this is I mean, there's a lot of thoughts to be had about this, I suppose. And I just really wanted to take a second and share some of those, I guess. So, so Derek, um, if you wanted to start at all, do you have any immediate thoughts about September 11th and kind of the implications for us today and what that means for us uh, folks striving to live the gospel? Yeah, there's a a number of things to to think about. One is um, people talk a lot about how on September 12th, there was a whole bunch of American unity, mm. but to some extent that was superficial. Yeah. Because where was the unity around Muslim Americans at that time? Mm-hmm. We had such an increase in violence and hate towards people who weren't involved at all. And people who and weren't I don't even think I don't even think being the same religion counts as a connection, right? right. I don't get I, that's you know Christian privilege. Yeah. When Christians are in the KKK, when they do other things like. I don't get connected with that. Yeah. You know, people don't somehow see me, you know, 
Christians have done a whole bunch of awful things, and we don't get associated the same. Yeah. So we should uh, we should be mindful of that. And many of those folks who received that bullying, you know, they weren't even necessarily Muslims. Like some of them yeah. were just brown folks from South Asia or from yeah. the Middle East. Yeah. Like, like a lot of these people who were victims of that bullying and that xenophobia and racism, they weren't even necessarily Muslim. Right. Yeah. But I think there is something the gospel does say about transcending our differences, not erasing them, but but having one body and diversity that that America in its founding ideals really was supposed to be about also mm. out of one many big time, big time. And I uh, remember thinking to myself, there was, I don't remember who was talking about it. I think it was, uh, it was either Dave Chappelle or Chris rock. There was a stand-up comedian who was talking about this superficial unity that you had, uh, that you had mentioned how, you know, for a good month or so, you got to if you were black in America, you just got to be an American for that month. Oh. You know, people would just be like, "No, you can." You would go into a supermarket, you would go and buy something, and someone would be like, "No, you take this because you're an American. You get to be an American. We're all Americans. We're in this together. We're on the same team." And then about a month later, you know, like, "Okay, back to being a Negro again." Like oh, you just no. got to be, like that. That unity was pretty superficial like there there was this there was this brief moment where like there was a you know a u.s flag on every house in front of every house after september mm -hmm. 11th and you know that that some of that persists to this day you know that that unity it was kind of it, it definitely felt superficial because after that there were a series of other factors or a series of other things that happened that kind of betrayed less a patriotism and more of a nationalism. Uh, for example, I remember after, um, after September 11th, like something that was kind of cool that I observed was there was a lot of people throughout the Northeast, especially in New York, mm -hmm. who were wearing, you know, NYPD, uh, PAPD, and FDNY uh, baseball caps in uh, solidarity with the first responders. They would also do things like, I mean, they would wear these hats over their like expensive haircuts and their business suits. And there actually did seem to be a greater good that people were trying to show solidarity with. But I also remember not too long after that, somebody at a New York Yankees game got up during the seventh inning stretch, which is usually reserved for a mandatory playing of God Bless America. They got up to try and leave the ball, well, not leave the ballpark, but, to, you know, go to the concourses where the restrooms were. And a security guard stopped them from leaving, uh, like actually physically restrained them from leaving during the playing of God Bless America as if they were breaking some kind of law. And the irony was not really lost on me at the time that story broke, that somebody was being physically restrained from going to the bathroom while a song playing espousing the virtues of a free America yeah, uh, was playing in the background. Yeah. Like there were there was that kind of nationalism. Something else I, I noticed was uh, you know, and this kind of came along with the with the hyper nationalism. It made it really hard to talk about things like police brutality. Like right after nine eleven, uh, the police and first responders and the military they all became some kind of monolithic super patriots that um, were to be revered and respected. Mm -hmm. Like you couldn't say anything wrong with them without saying anything wrong about America. 
Yeah, and it's interesting, like how how issues of double standard and privilege get wrapped up in this, where yeah. it's okay for Americans to say we're never going to forget this and we're going to hold this against Muslims forever, yeah. or uh, the Latter Day Saint version of this is remembering Lil, Lil Burn W Boggs and his extermination or yeah. order. Yeah. That, well, it was 1838, and we still haven't gotten over that, right? Right. And then the expulsion of the saints from Nauvoo as well. Like these are things that are part of what we've told our kids and our grandkids for literally centuries, almost two centuries, no one tells us to get over it because that's part of the formative experience of our people. And I think to tell black people, oh, you have to get over this thing that actually is a formative experience and continues today to have significant uh, measurable effects on people. You can't just say, well, get over it. I wasn't there. You weren't there. I, it's not, you know. Right. You really can't. And uh, something that uh, came to my mind was this uh, this entry on the LDS.org blog by uh, Darius Gray. He actually wrote a blog called Healing the uh, Wounds of Racism. And under a heading that said Examine Ourselves, he talked about how when we show less compassion uh, for people of a different race when they experience crime, poverty, um, and you know other, you know other hardships. Mm-hmm. If we have less compassionate to those individuals who are of a different race when they experience those things, then you know we might be racist. And uh, I, I feel like being able to extend the same amount of compassion, being able to truly mourn with those who mourn, who are in those situations, that is part of the second great commandment. So if we are saying. Uh, you know, to anybody really, but especially in this instance, if we were telling black people to get over it, then we are not being, we are not honoring our baptismal covenants. We are not being disciples of Christ. We are not being Christians. We can't rightly say Mm -hmm. that we are being Christians while in the same breath, we are telling black people to get over slavery and Jim Crow and mass incarceration as if those things don't still affect us to this day. Just because we may not necessarily have a personal connection to those things doesn't make that pain any less valid or doesn't mean that we don't got to feel that pain with them. Part of our baptismal covenant, like I said, is mourning with those who mourn and comforting those who stand in need of comfort. And if we can't extend that compassion or that grace to people when they experience hardship, then we are not honoring our baptismal covenant. We are not being Christian. You know, what's interesting is the double standard in response and reaction. Like what what we as a community decide, oh, we're going to act on this and stuff that we're going to say, oh, that's just part of doing business. You know, after September 11th, like people moved heaven and earth the Patriot Act, all this, you know, counterterrorism. We started wars in different places. We did this because, you know, um, three over th- a little over three thousand people died, mm. and a lot of economic disaster and a lot of symbolic stuff too. But where is the outrage when, for example, gun violence in this country? Mm-hmm. is at 40,000 per year. 40,000 Americans die by gun violence, um, including homicide and suicide and accident. Yeah. Like, where is the, oh, we've got to do something about that. Now, I don't know what to do about that. I'm not 
espousing one political solution, but I'm saying, well, where is the, the like, we're all going to actually have to do something about this. We should keep that same energy when it comes to uh, dealing with national tragedies. Just the same as we moved quickly to deal with, you know, 9-11 in its immediate aftermath, we should keep that same energy when it comes to other tragedies in this nation, including gun violence. Right, and I, I think the same thing goes back to um, the, the tragedies inflicted upon people of color in this country. That is, that is over, you know, over the centuries, it's millions and millions of right. people. Right. Like, where is the the energy to say, "Hey, we've got to do something about that"? Mm-hmm. Like, we as a country have dragged our feet on abolition, on um, then with Reconstruction, then with Jim Crow, then with mass incarceration, then with you know segregation. Just all these other problems, we've just said, "Oh, we'll you know it'll we'll deal with it later." Yeah. Like th- that actually was literally in our Constitution of "We'll deal with it later." with slavery hmm. you know i did not know that yeah yeah there's a the provision that prevents the importation of enslaved africans after 1808 um and then there's there's some uneasy compromises in there like the three-fifths compromise that right. are like we can't figure this out now so we'll just deal with it later yeah um so there's that's what I mean by baked into the Constitution is this this idea of like oh we have to unite and we'll just deal with the whole slavery thing later, hmm. and we've been doing that now and we're still dealing with it and we'll say we'll get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we need to think about uh, what tragedies get action and sympathy and movement and which ones don't. Mm-hmm. You know, like the whole, and we this need whole, to be consistent. This whole vaping thing, people have pointed out. We've now had, you know, maybe less than ten deaths or something like that due to vaping, mm-hmm. and now there's a whole bunch of movement around this, and the CDC is m- might say something, and the president might ban it. Or like I don't know, but why don't we do that with stuff that kills way more than six people? Like yeah, like police killing unarmed black and brown people mm-hmm. like that is is just something that's obviously should not be tolerated in any civilized society yeah and we as a people say well that's just how it is mm. and that gets to the heart of the gospel because some people claiming to be christian will find religious excuses for not loving their immigrant neighbor or their queer neighbor or their mm-hmm. neighbor of color and then blame it on their religion yeah, I'm reminded of something that Barbara Brown Taylor said. She said something like, if I'm faced with a choice between loving my religion and loving my neighbor, well, Jesus never told me to love, commanded me to love my religion. Mm-hmm. Jesus commanded us to love our neighbors, and that trumps, although I shouldn't say trump, that overrides, <laughs> that overrides this... Um, sort of egotistical drive to to love your religion, which isn't really ever a part of our covenant, right? right? We're supposed to love God and we're supposed to love people. Right. And realize that our our religious structures are a means to do those things. Correct. And not the master of them. Right. And that's how we look beyond the mark. I, I forget uh, which Book of Mormon prophet talked about that, but I believe that is one of the primary things he meant when he said, 
when you talk about people looking beyond the mark, mm-hmm. when they worry far more about checking off the boxes and meeting the ordinances and obeying the tenets of a, of a religion rather than actually, yeah. you know, directing their efforts to the end to which that religion was created, which is, as you said, loving God and loving people. So when obeying our religion gets in the way of those two things, I think that is where we can really mess up. So anything else about September 11th? That's all I wanted to say, yeah. I guess. All right, so the, uh, so the other story that we wanted to cover briefly was, um, so this young lady named Jessica, her story has been circulating about social media the last uh, little while, like last day or two. Now, if you, I don't know her last name, but if you don't know who she is, Jessica had a video on um, mormonandgay.org. And uh, on this website, they had all these video testimonials of these uh, lesbian and gay uh, members of the church who would talk about their experience being gay and being in the church and how they're making it work. Jessica was one of those individuals. However, Jessica just a couple of days ago came out with a video where she in essence, and you know, Derek, correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. but what she says in the video at about like the six minute and 40 second mark or so is that she is in love and with a woman currently that she's happier than she's ever been, but also sad because she feels like she's letting some people down, uh, that, you know, that receives strength from her story as a, you know, as a lesbian who is making an effort to be celibate in the church. I think that's a good too long. Didn't watch version. Am I missing anything, Derek? I think that's basically what it what it is, and she okay. she partly wanted to explain like why she why she's taking this step and why she's taking down her video from the Mormon and Gay website. Which now I have to say, because of what President Nelson has to say about the word Mormon, he would have more of a problem with the word Mormon than the word gay in that website. <laughs> so, gay is okay. Gay is okay. Um. And also, we talked about this before the show started, but it wor- it's worth mentioning that Mormon and Gay started about three years ago, and it had 16 videos. It had 16 videos on that website, all in that vein of different members of the church who were gay talking about how they were making it work, whether it was being celibate or mm-hmm. being in a mixed orientation marriage. They had 16 of those stories, 16 of those videos at the launch of that website, and currently they only have three. Yeah, and a number of those videos have been people who, um, who let's see how to put this, that basically the perspective that they were sharing in the video no longer was livable for them, and they went in the direction of living a more full and complete life with someone who's aligned to their orientation, mm-hmm. um, which isn't anything weird. It's the same thing that straight people do. Right. Right. Finding a partner, someone that you match with, and then and then building life together. Yeah, that actually shouldn't be newsworthy. It should it be boring. Shouldn't be. But it shouldn't be. Unfortunately, it's not boring yet. And the whole reason, I mean, what really got to me about the video when I watched it was just how emotional she 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 seemed to be about the whole thing. How how emotional she was about the whole thing. You you can tell she had been really wrestling with this issue for. A while, mm-hmm. and the fact that she feels 
like she's letting people down by living into her truth by living authentically like that just speaks volumes about the potential damage that we are doing to the gay members of the church or the people who are trying to make it work by supposing that who they are an authentic expression of who they are is somehow a problem in the gospel of jesus christ is somehow a problem in the plan of salvation that there's not a seat at the table for people who are living as jessica is choosing to live now so just seeing how emotional she was just really, really hurt me because that should not be something, as you said, it should not be mm-hmm. newsworthy and it shouldn't be a big deal that she's found love and is announcing it. But because she is a member of the church and because the church has this particular uh, teaching about the place of gay people you know, in the church, that is the whole reason this is a big deal. That is the whole reason we're talking about this right now. Yeah, and I think part of the thing is not to, obviously, I respect her privacy, and to some extent she wants this to be known. That's why it's on video. Yeah. But really it's not about her, and I don't want to, you know, judge either her choices back then or her choices now. It's really not about her. It's about these structures that make her feel that she has to apologize for living her true self. Right. Which some people are criticizing her for apologizing. But what we should do is criticize the structures that make it yes. that it's her best, yes, uh, either her best apparent choice, yes, to do that. And I'm like, living unapologetically and without fear is a major goal. But we have to look at the structures around that, and and not so much whether 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 she's doing it the right way or not. Yeah, I was thinking about that just today or yesterday. Just this idea of being critical of the structures that put her in that position and make her feel like she had to apologize rather than being critical of her because people are so quick to do that for whatever reason. I think it's easy to criticize a person. I mean, the person is right there and the person has less power. Mm -hmm. It's far harder to be critical of a structure when you can't really do anything about that or have a direct effect on it. I'm, I'm assuming that's why people think they're in a place or think that it's okay to be critical of her apologizing for how she feels and what she's doing now. But you're totally right, Derek. We need to, the proper direction of energy needs to be the structures, the institution that, that made her feel like she had to apologize for being who she truly is. And, um, yeah, that's 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 a far more a far better use of our energy. So mm-hmm. thank, thanks for thanks yeah. for naming that. Other than that, I wish her the best. Um, I don't have any other details about her. I don't know her personally. I've never had any communication with her. Okay, well that's fine. That's really all I wanted to say about this as well. If you haven't seen the video, we'll go ahead and put that in the show notes. You guys can have a look at it. And uh, yeah, as Derek said, definitely wish Jessica well. With that, I think it's a good time to move into uh, the Come Follow Me. We're in the last half of uh, 2 Corinthians. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what you're going to talk about today, Derek. I I didn't notice a theme as I was studying the last half of 2 Corinthians and just preparing for this episode in general. But I definitely want to talk about uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where where we talk about, uh, I guess, what seems to be the church's welfare system and uh, the necessity of imparting people's substance. And I want to spend a little bit of time on uh, 2 Corinthians 13 because it kind of like ties everything together that we've talked about so far. Uh, What do you you plan on talking about? I'm going to talk a a little bit about uh, the collection described in chapters 8 and 9. Okay. A little bit about um, Paul and his hardships and his approach to boasting. Yes. Then a little bit about his, which is part of the same thing, 
he's boasting in response to the claims of the what are called super apostles, his opponents in Corinth. Yes. And sort of how his how he embodies something that is infused with an understanding of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus uh-huh. and how he's truly living into a Christian life. Neat. All right. In that case, I will go first by uh, talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I want to start with verse 9. Um, but there's a couple things worth mentioning here. First, first off, the primary focus of chapters 8 and 9 seems to be on the welfare efforts of the church. Like in these chapters, people often um, make their case for the prosperity gospel. But more importantly, Paul shows us more ways to love our neighbor, which is what I really like about these chapters 8 and 9, is we are getting yet more ways to follow the second great commandment in the law. Pre- President Nukdorf actually talked about this in one of his, uh, one of his talks in General Conference back in like 2011, I, I think. But he says something along the lines of, our commitment to welfare principles should be at the very root of our faith and devotion to Christ which I thought was super interesting. Uh, in that same talk, he went on to quote uh, DNC 42 uh, from the gentle plea, if thou lovest me, thou wilt remember the poor and consecrate of thy properties for their support. So again, there's this idea that in order for us to be true Christians, we have to remember the poor and uh, the highest embodiment or the highest way to live our covenant of uh, loving Christ is to consecrate, I really like that word, consecrate our properties for, for their support to the poor and the needy, uh, to, to the direct command. Um, and then he goes on to say, remember in all things the poor and the needy, the sick and afflicted, for he that doeth not these things, the same is not my disciple. That's in DNC 5240. So again, we get another clear uh clear statement that in order for us to be a true disciple of Christ, in order for us to be real Christians, we have to remember the poor and the needy. I think that's a big reason why that became part of the now fourfold mission of the church. Uh, Before it was just proclaim the gospel, perfect the saints, redeem the dead. But now with the addition of helping the poor and the needy, we're putting additional emphasis on another thing we can do to love our neighbor. And Christ was super clear that helping the poor and the needy is part of true discipleship. Discipleship, And uh, there was another warning that uh, Christ gave us in uh, DNC 104. He says, If any man shall take of, of, of the abundance which I have made and impart not his portion according to the law of my gospel unto the poor and the needy, he shall with the wicked lift up his eyes in hell, being in torment. That's uh, DNC 104.18. So, we learned about the commandment, but now we learn about the warning to those who do not seek to impart their substance uh, to the poor. And I think while it's important to have our thoughts inclined toward heaven, we miss the essence if, of our religion if our hands are not also inclined uh, toward our fellow man. Uh, quoting Uchtdorf again, he goes on to say that this very hour there are many members of the church who are suffering. They are hungry, stretched financially, and struggling with all manner of physical, emotional, and spiritual distress. They pray with all the energy of their souls for succor, for relief. Please don't think that this is someone else's responsibility. It is mine. It is yours. We are all enlisted in the Lord's plan. There is something everyone can contribute. 
So bringing that back to Second Corinthians, um, I, I just wanted to pose the question to myself, what do I have that other people may stand in need of? And, you know, it could be money, but it could also be time. It could be access. It could be resources and it could be privilege, which is why uh, uh, chapter eight, verse nine really stood out to me in particular because it says that we are because it says that Jesus became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. And I just thought that was a really interesting way to phrase things. I thought that was a really interesting statement. Because while, while Jesus owned and had dominion over everything in heaven and earth, the real riches that Christ set aside were the rights and privileges of Godhood and, uh, you know, unbound by human limitations. He, he took on those limitations because, as told to us by Paul in the Hebrews in Alma in chapter 7, that, that this was how he was going to become the perfect minister. This was how he was mm-hmm. going to know uh, to succor us. This is how he was going to be a perfect empathizer. This, in essence, was how he was going to make the perfect atonement was by becoming poor as to the things of the world and poor as to his godhood because that's that that's the real poverty is he's embracing. It's not really a material poverty he's embracing, even though he is embracing that too. What he's really embracing is a poverty where he has limitations on his godhood status. Now, how, how I try to liken that to us is I, I believe those with access and privilege can learn something from Christ's example here. And in many cases, we don't even have to forfeit access to resources, money, or privilege in order to grant it to others. In, in fact, Christ, knowing that he would lose access to the full rights and privileges of Godhood, still chose to do so in order to lift us up. Then how much more should we, who may not lose privilege, access, or resources, lift up those who don't have the same? Like, we're not all going to be asked to do what Christ did. We're not going to be asked to sacrifice all that he did. But we should follow his example in offering that which we do have, whether it be money or privilege or access or resources, to those who need it and stand in need of it, that they may become rich as Christ is seeking to make us rich. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, There is one more thing I think needs to be noted here mm-hmm. because um, – I, I don't know. It's important to me as somebody who's trying to who's trying to do this. And while even and that thing is that even though Christ embraced being poor, even though he embraced poverty for our benefit, he never wanted anything or wanted for anything is an entire his entire life. He always had what he needed. When he needed to pay the temple tax, he got it out of the fish's mouth, you know? That was just <laughs> a bizarre thing, you know. Uh, when he when he need, when he needed uh, when he needed food to feed the multitude, he prayed over five loaves and two fishes, and he even had leftovers, like eleven whole baskets of yeah. leftovers. You know what I'm saying? And uh, when when he needed a means of conveyance into Jerusalem, when he needed that donkey, he knew who to ask and where to go. You know what I'm saying? Like Jesus never wanted for anything, even though he embraced poverty. And I and I feel like Paul kind of knew that, and he would kind of let us in on that secret uh, when, when, when he uh, writes the epistle to the Philippians, that famous scripture, Philippians uh, 4, chapter 12 and 13, where we in essence learn that we can do and accomplish and perhaps even have all things through yeah. Christ who strengthens us. I, I mean, he doesn't say that directly in the, uh, the second epistle of the Corinthians, but I think Paul is giving us hints of that, that not only... Are we expected to do this if we have this access, this privilege, or this abundance? But also that we're going to be looked after when we do that. And Paul seems to know that, and he tells the saints as much. 
he tells the Philippians as much. And I, I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, that's really good. And it reminds me a lot of what Paul says in the Christ hymn in, in Philippians chapter 2, where there's this amazing poem where Jesus gives up his privilege that he has as uh, in the f- being in the form of God and takes upon himself the form of a servant. And that ends up exalting all of us. Yes. And that speaks to something that a lot of people think an analysis of privilege and power dynamics is some wishy-washy, liberal, weak thing. It's not. It's in the scriptures. It is in the scriptures. It's in the scriptures to say, look, <laughs> you know, Jesus was rich, but he declined the use of that richness, took upon himself poverty to make those who were poor now rich. It's yeah. just this beautiful almost ironic thing that the world doesn't understand. Mm. The world is the one that the, the world of capitalism doesn't understand this. This is like, oh, the rich get rich and the poor get poorer. But this turns, I, I want to read on, this is in Thomas Weymouth's translation. Okay. A few more verses in chapter 8. Um, because here's, here's the context on the ground. The saints in Jerusalem were experiencing a famine and needed support. And Paul decided, I'm going to go ask some of the saints in the churches that I have founded to contribute. And the Macedonians contributed even above their means. And the Corinthians oh, yeah. hadn't contributed. And, and Paul's saying, look, this, is essential. this isn't just an accessory to the gospel. This is a, an essential embodiment of, of Christ in your life in community. Yeah. Like if you don't get this part of it, you don't even get the point of Christ. Yeah. You know, and I think that's amazing. And I, I think Paul is anticipating their concern of like, oh, he's taking their money mm-hmm. or he's wanting them to be poor. And that's actually not what he says in verses, um, verses 13 through 15. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and trial for you, but it is a question of equality. At present, your abundance will supply their lack so that in the future, their abundance will supply your lack and Mm. thereby there may be equality. Just as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not lack. And that last pair of clauses is a quotation from Exodus chapter 16, which is the narrative of the gathering of the manna in the wilderness where they Mm. didn't have any food. And some people gathered a little, and some people gathered a lot of manna. But in the end, somehow they all had the same amount, exactly what they needed. Mm. And this is what what some people in the world will find threatening. The way we live in community with one another is threatening to the world. That's why, um, in fact, why they killed Jesus. is because what he was saying actually <laughs> is threatening to the powers that be. Right. But... But I love what he's saying here because it, he says it's a question of equality. And equality was a, a significant Greek value, not so much a Roman value. But in, in their Greek democratic ideals, there's like a sense of, look, we're all, we're all in this, helping one another out. And it just makes so, sen- so much sense because there's some people who take any discussion of privilege and think of it as, oh, you're going to you're going to be worse off. No, we don't want people to be worse off. Right. We want you to take what you have too much of and decline that 
to some extent willingly for the sake of those who need it. And for us, especially as men, that means there's going to be times where we speak, where we should decide to listen. Right. Uh, listen to women. Let that pass the microphone over to them and and make sure that we we willingly don't take everything we could. Mm-hmm. And that's really following Jesus. Mm, big time. Big time. I just love how he, he explains it as a as a measure of equality. The word equality is found very rarely in the New Testament, but here it is quite significantly. Quite, quite. That that's all I wanted to say about Second uh, Corinthians eight. Um, I think the next thing I'm going to go over is in Second Corinthians thirteen, which is near the end of the. Uh, well, it is at the end of the uh, of the letters. So, do you want to? Talk about your stuff before I get yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to say a few things about what Paul's doing. Like, okay. remember from last week, the context of of this letter is that Paul is writing to the Corinthians who have these other false teachers coming in who are much more impressive, and now Paul has to defend his own ministry and his own apostleship. But he right. doesn't defend it by saying, "Well, I was." I was ordained and I was called. He right. actually defends it by de- doing the same thing we he's talking about, declining his own uniqueness and privilege and saying it's not about me, it's about the message. Back to this envelope thing. It's yeah. not. It's taking the most prized message in the world and putting it in an ordinary envelope, which explains why apparently some of the criticisms these other teachers had of Paul were that, oh, he wasn't wealthy, he didn't speak very well and he apparently didn't look great either yeah like. yeah there's just just like why are you following this paul guy like we're so much cooler mm-hmm. and these were the super apostles yeah um <laughs> the hooper leon apostoloi in greek is what it's called the over exceeding uh, overly abundant too much apostles <laughs> um i don't know how to explain it better than that the the king james I think has the very chiefest apostles, which is really misleading. Yeah. But it's basically like the the extra. That's like our word extra. Oh, That's okay. what they were. <laughs> These extra apostles. Yes. And so what he's doing is a lot of irony. He's he's boasting, but the things that he's boasting about are actually embarrassing. Mm-hmm. It's really, really interesting what he does. Like, I want to go through what scholars call the hardship catalog, which is not a catalog you want to order from. <laughs> Okay. What is the hardship catalog? The hardship catalog is in um, in chapter eleven, starting in um, like twenty three, verse twenty three, eleven, verse twenty three. All right. He's talking about all these things: imprisonments, beatings, facing death, thirty nine lashes, beaten with rods. He was stoned once. Three times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the sea, and that's not even the. Sh- the shipwreck that happens at the end of Acts that hasn't happened yet. Uh, um, he was stoned. I think it's in Acts fourteen. That's all. That's in Acts. He's been, you know, on all these dangers. He's worked hard. He's been starving. He's been without clothing, and he boasts about his weaknesses. And then he goes even on to boast about how he had to escape from Damascus in a basket being lowered through the city wall, which is also in Acts. Um, And I'm like, this is really interesting because he wins the argument because he doesn't play the same game as these super apostles who are boasting about how 
uh, all these proud things. It's lost to many, many people here about how embarrassing these things would have been to a Roman male. Mm. You know, think about a military might of like, oh, you're triumphant and you, oh, you win. And he's talking about all the times he lost. Um, you know, the Romans had had a um, the the most important military prize that someone could get was called the Corona Muralis, which is the crown of the wall. And this was given to the most valiant soldier who, when attacking a walled city, would be the first one over the wall, which is a very, very dangerous spot to be in because you're crawling up this ladder over the wall and they can shoot you or with arrows or um, dump stuff on you or throw the ladder over. You had to be very brave to try to be the first person over the wall. And the first person over the wall would get this as the most crowning glory that the Roman army could give you hmm. and what paul's doing is saying i'm boasting in literally the exact opposite i wasn't victorious i was scared i ran away through a hole in the wall <laughs> and that's what i'm bragging about he is bragging about the most unmasculine things unmilitary things un you know he's He's, he's basically turning everything upside down. He's overcoming people's categories and expectations and saying this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. And he goes on to boast about his weaknesses later. He's saying, you know, when I'm weak, then I'm strong, which sounds like a contradiction, but there's a middle term in there. When I'm weak, I trust in Christ. And when I trust in Christ, then I'm strong because it's all about Christ for, uh, for Paul here. There's that secret again that Paul is letting us in on. Yeah. Letting us know that in spite of his weakness, in spite, I mean, he's not talking about poverty here, but he is talking about how with Christ or in the service mm -hmm. of Christ, he is made strong. He is made capable. Yeah. Although poverty is in the uh, hardship catalog. He does list, list that. Oh, yep. Yep. Okay. He, he worked hard. He labored. He um, was homeless. He didn't have food. He didn't have clothing many times. And he did this because of his love for the people that he worked among, mm. the people that he wanted to serve, the churches he founded. He loved them so much that he's willing to do that. And so then there's this uh, whole thorn in the flesh thing. Yeah. Yeah. Which commentators and scholars have no clue exactly. You know, there's no agreement on this. I tend to think that the thorn in, in the flesh must have been an actual person someone who impeded his ministry. Um, and it does seem like these last yeah. uh, four chapters or whatever seem to be directed at these super apostles right. that we're talking to. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if he's, I mean, he, could, he, could he possibly be talking about them or was, is that too simple of a... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly. Okay. It could be the type of thing that maybe the Corinthians would have known what he's talking about, but we mm -hmm. don't know for sure. Some people say it could have been a physical illness of some sort. Okay. Some people think that it could have been some weakness of sin, which I think is, is less likely. Um, I don't think that really fits the context because um, that that's not something that, that, that really fits what he's boasting about, about how weaknesses magnify... Christ, um, 
Christ wouldn't want people to be in sin, right? That's not right. what we want. Right. But physical weaknesses, adversaries, yeah, definitely that's something that that would actually magnify Christ and, and make perfect uh, Christ's power. Okay. And in the context, like verse 10, it says, Therefore I am satisfied with my weaknesses, insults, difficulties, persecutions, and calamities. That doesn't sound like a personal temptation or sin that he was like. Some people think, oh, he was gay, and he was hated it. And and that's where they get this. I'm like, no, this isn't what Paul's talking about. He's really talking about something external that is oppressing him, mm. which is why I think it's probably a person. Okay. But he, he really magnifies himself over the super apostles saying, look, I'm really the ones that are about Christ. These others, they can boast, but I've got everything they have and even more because I know Christ. Mm. And so that's all I had to say about that. So maybe we can go on to um, chapter 13. Yeah. Um, chapter 13 kind of really put a button on my study for this past week and uh, my preparation for this week's episode in general. And um, yeah, here, 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 here's why. Like 13 verse 5, Paul tells the saints to examine themselves whether they be in the faith. And I kind of pegged that as my theme for like this week's episode or this week's study for me, this idea of self-examination. It may not be the most groundbreaking thing, but I thought about it in the context of Second Corinthians and also in the context of Brother Darius Gray's words on his blog post. His observation that racism is manifest when we show less compassion for those of different races experiences. Uh, sorry, let me say Let me try that again. When his observation that racism is manifest when we show less compassion for those of different races experiences. It's all of that is under a subheading that reads. Um, let me get this subheading here. It's not on LDS.org anymore. That is crazy. Okay. Okay. Well, the heading is something along the lines of look at yourself or examine yourself. Um, gosh, recognize it in ourselves. That is what the subheading says. Now, self-examination in both contexts is critical to our discipleship, and Paul gives us a lot to consider in 2 Corinthians. In this particular context, I believe he's directly addressing his detractors who keep trying to get him to present evidence of his apostleship, but I also wanted to read this in the context of, um, of his teachings throughout all of 2 Corinthians, which I guess may actually be many letters, but um, his, his teachings thus far He's cautioned us against comparing ourselves to others. He's encouraged us to bear our thorns with humility and grace and glory in them. Uh, he's commanded us to impart of our substance to the poor and the needy. He's encouraged us to separate or to be separate and not touch the unclean thing. He's encouraged us to repent, uh, to yoke ourselves with other believers so that our journeys may be easier and more efficacious. He's uh, counseled us to be reconciled to God and you know, a lot of other things. He's counseled us to do a lot in all of Second Corinthians. Paul is giving us, in essence, an opportunity to recognize things 
uh, that, that we can and must change about ourselves in order to move forward and become new creatures in Christ. That, that's another thing he actually counseled mm. us to do was to become uh, new creatures in uh, chapter five, I think. Yeah. And uh, as we become new creatures, we, we become better keepers of the covenant. We become better neighbors, which I happen to believe is a solution to many of our nation's calamities. Uh, again, as I was thinking about this in the context of uh, Brother Darius's words and the entirety of Second Corinthians, I think self-examination is one of our biggest tools to combating uh, mm-hmm. many of our nation's problems, including racism and a general apathy to suffering across the globe or here at home that we don't feel personally connected to. So um, I, I just see a lot of opportunities in Second Corinthians for us to really examine ourselves. I, again, I know he's talking mm-hmm. to the to the super apostles, as he called them, uh, specifically in this verse, but I think he's also giving us, as the readers, an opportunity to really examine ourselves and to become better disciples uh, through these teachings that he's giving us throughout the entirety of Second Corinthians, which coincidentally or maybe not so coincidentally had a lot to do with uh, what we what we've talked about so far with regard to 9-11 and with regard to racism and with regard to treating other people's traumas as our own yeah and you know one thing interesting is that the um the greek verbs here of course are plural um it's a plural you that's that's being commanded to to test yourself okay i take this in context to be that this isn't just an individual thing it's a communal responsibility to examine yourselves yeah, and see where you are as a community because almost everything else that the Corinthians were doing here needs to be done as a community, like um, reproving the false teachers, organizing the collection for the saints in Jerusalem, all these things, they really need to rely on each other. Oh, and sorry, one more thing that I noticed. Uh, I did actually do a little bit of homework on Greek before yeah. I came today just to be ready. Mm-hmm. I, I did notice that in the context. The Greek impl- the Greek implies that this is supposed to be a sustained self-examination, a regular self-examination that is like either performed on a regular basis or one that is meant to continue, not one that's meant to yeah. be a one-off thing, that this self-examination is something we should be doing throughout our lives. Right, and so the... The word there is peradzite, which is a That's present. That's how you say that. <laughs> it's a present imperative. So there's different imper- So Greek has different tenses that you can you can have, and in in the imperative you can have either present, which is an ongoing, repeated um, thing. Okay. Or the aorist tense, which is a like an urgent one-time request. There are many exceptions to these, but that's the general pattern, and. Um, that's that's the uh, what Paul's using here that okay. to make it an ongoing practice of testing yourselves. Got it. And uh, was there anything else you wanted to say about thirteen, or uh, you got any more to share about Second Corinthians? Well, I just love the concluding verse: the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Because there you get the Godhead mm-hmm. and how there, he, he talks in both of his letters to the Corinthians about the unity of God's people, and then he ends with invoking all three persons in the Godhead and and about their unity. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's that's the perfect way to wrap it up by reminding us that we are created in the image of God, that we are to be one, even as 
Jesus and the Father are one, as Jesus prays in John 17. Yep. And I'm like, wow, that's just a, a beautiful way of, of getting them there, all three coordinated in a certain way. And that's the, the final note he leaves for the Corinthians. Yeah, that's beautiful. The whole thing is beautiful, but I... I don't know. Just the study of Second Corinthians has really been an experience for me, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm really glad you highlighted that ending because it really is beautiful and puts a puts a nice little button on the whole thing of uh, whose work this is and you know what we're doing this for. I, I really appreciate that. If there's nothing else for Second Corinthians, then we can go ahead and move on to the prayer roll. I don't know who you have on deck. I think I was just going to talk a little bit about the straight pride people. Ah, yes, the straight pride people. But I forgot to look up all the details. <laughs> you know. So there was a straight pride parade in Boston, which I didn't go to. I almost regret not going to it, but I, I didn't feel like it was the right place and time for me to go. Mm-hmm. There were a number of arrests. There was a number of, you know, very scary and threatening things that I shouldn't have to deal with. I think this is something for the allies to take on and yeah. get themselves arrested. Um, yeah. So I didn't I didn't go. Maybe I should have. I don't know. But so there's layers to this. One is the original protesters which weren't actually didn't seem to be proud to be stru- straight. They were proud of their hatred for others. Mm-hmm. It seems like, you know. They were very Trumpian and very, um, yeah, it's it's not a pretty picture. So there's that. And then there's the people. Now, I don't know all the details, but apparently the cops arrested by force a number of the peaceful protesters. I'm not sure exactly what happened, um, whether you can trust the cops' account of this or not. You cannot. It, yeah. As a general rule, yeah. we are past the point of trusting cops' right. accounts on anything. Exactly. That's my point. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, we can't. And then there's apparently uh, some of the counter-protesters came up with this uh, chant. You know all these chants? They all rhyme. They have all these cutesy rhymes. Yes. One of them, they started saying, bottoms and tops, we all hate cops. <laughs> 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 so... Yeah, did not get that, which really flashes back to Stonewall quite literally, mm-hmm. right? Um, that organized queer people, although Stonewall wasn't really organized, but queer people together resisting overreach by, by cops is, is, is something that should be remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, there was a judge in Boston who... Now, fortunately, we have a prosecutor... Rachel Rollins, who declined to, to to prosecute whatever the protesters were charged with, and the judge in the case wouldn't let her drop the charges, and this is a mess-up thing. Even though it's her discretion as a prosecutor to say, look, we get to choose where we put our resources, and I'm not going to prosecute these people, mm-hmm. right? That's part of the checks and balances of our system is having, pro- which is why we need good prosecutors in every municipality in this country. Yeah, they got a lot of power. Right. They can, uh, they have power over things like, you know, drug offensive, nonviolent offenses, um, 
you know, how homelessness is criminalized, all these other things, they yeah. can decline to prosecute. Um, but anyway, then uh, she got a favorable ruling from the Massachusetts Supreme Court, which backed her up on this. And so hopefully things will, will turn out for the best. But it, I'm just, we've got to pray for all these people who are trying to give straight supremacy one last uh, thing before it dies. Like, oh, mm -hmm. let's try. It's kind of like when you're about to lose the game and you're 40 points behind and, and your coach is like, oh, in the next three minutes, let's do this and this and this. I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work. Right. But they do that. But they got to try. They try. Yeah. All these desperate things towards the end of their uh, time. Right. Just throwing a couple of Hail, Hail Marys before yeah. they just accept that they lose the game. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that um, how this turns out, and hopefully we'll see the best of of Boston. Yeah, from now hope on. Hope so. Hope so. And Milo was there. Oh my gosh! Milo was the Grand Marshal of the Straight Pride Parade, which that makes no sense. Yes, parades are already gay to begin with, but having a gay Grand Marshal, I mean, what are you? Right. What are you proud of? What are you of? doing? Right. <laughs> what if you're are proud you doing? Of straight. Why not put a, like a cool straight person in? But yes. I think there's. There's just some, but no cool straight person is going to grand marshal a straight pride parade. Like, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> there's so much wrong. There's right. so many misnomers in right. this parade. Right. Like straight pride parade for one thing, a misnomer. Having a gay grand marshal, just yeah, so straight. much is wrong. So much did not make sense about this whole straight thing. Straight pride is hate pride. Indeed. Yeah, that's a bar. So that's all I had for the prayer roll. Let's keep them in mind and hope that they have a speedy path to repentance. Speedy path to repentance. We can do that. That's that's an easy thing to do, to 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 pray for that specifically. But uh, th th this is what I wanted to bring up. I, I don't know if you heard this story about this uh, about this referee in Alaska, but uh, her name is uh, Jill Blackstone. She's a she's a swimming referee in the Anchorage School District. And uh, last week, a student athlete named Brecken Willis was disqualified by by, uh, by Blackstone after winning her first race of the night. And the reason was because her uniform was uh, too revealing. Have you have you seen the story? I've seen the story, yes. Okay. Now, though most schools have a modesty rule when it comes to uniforms, the decision to disqualify Willis is made questionable by, by, by several factors. One is that her entire team wears the same uniform, the, the entire team. The, the same uniform that the school itself issued to its athletes, yet none of them got disqualified. So, you know, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that the, the, the so-called malfunction in Willis's wardrobe was easily fixable. The, the rules say that a disqualification is only merited if fixing the immodesty slows down competition and a suit wedgie, as they're so-called, is a common enough occurrence that it should have been shrugged off as such. And that's what this young lady was dealing with, I think. Uh, the third thing was that Willis is one of three young women of color on her team, herself being a, a mixed young lady. White, white supremacy has, and this is like my biggest issue with the whole thing, is that white supremacy has, an, it has a history of uh, policing uh, black, the black body, especially black women's bodies. And this isn't even the first time, even this, it's not the first high-profile case of a black person in student athletics being policed. It's not even the first story this week 
you know. Um, last week we got news of uh, Tyler Williams of the University of Arkansas Fort Smith basketball team being kicked off of his team because of his dreadlocks. We have audio of him, his parents, and the coach sitting in a meeting listening to uh, Tyler being kicked off of his team because he refused to cut his hair or to change his hair because, quote, they didn't want that image on the school. Like, he was going to be the face of the basketball program, and they didn't want his dreadlocked head being the face of the basketball program. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just ridiculous. Uh, another story we, we talked about earlier in the show, or, you know, when we first started the show, was a referee named Alan Maloney. Uh, Andrew Johnson was a varsity wrestler in New Jersey, and he was told by the referee, Alan Maloney, that he needed to cut his locks before wrestling or he would be disqualified. And to add further to the caucasity, when Alan Maloney was rightfully took, taken a task, he countersued for emotional distress and for a damaged reputation because he used his racism to cut a young black man's hair, even though that was not... Oh. Yeah. I would have won the Ali Henny White Fragility bingo because there, I got all, there were all those... Uh, have you seen this? The White Fragility Bingo? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. Okay. Like, all of those got checked off. <laughs> they all got story. checked off. Yeah. He, made himself, yeah. he made himself the victim, wielded his white supremacy in just an extremely inappropriate manner. And I feel like he did it. Like, it was – the whole thing was peak white tears, man. Like, a lot of times when we see white supremacy wielded in this fashion, it's because – a black person is winning often at the expense of a white person. That's what Brecken Wills was doing. Like nobody said anything to her until after she won her first race. No one said anything to uh, Andrew Johnson until he got to like the biggest match of his high school career to that point. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Tyler Williams, was that his name? Yeah, the, the young man from a uh, University of Arkansas. He was about to begin his second season playing basketball as the leading scorer at this particular at this particular school and he was about to get and he got kicked off his team it's just the whole thing is ridiculous and just within our own community outside of student athletics i was like as i read the story i thought about you know brother tacolby jackson van when mm -hmm. he got uh, released briefly from his calling as a temple worker because of his locks uh, but then got quickly reinstated now the whole reason he got released was because they thought his locks were against the rules. They were not against the rules. In fact, the uh, person who released him went as far as to say that if he wasn't in the Wasatch, the Wasatch Front, he'd probably be okay to be an ordinance worker in the temple. But at the Wasatch Front, his hair might be a distraction. And as a result, they ended up releasing him, but thankfully quickly reinstating him. Um, you know, I just want to say... Yeah. I love how the Come Follow Me lessons are so timely because all of these people do the exact opposite of what Paul... Is telling the Corinthians to do yeah. to give up their privilege mm -hmm. in order to make room for others. Yes, big time. And that's exactly behind all of these refusals of of the straight people and the straight pride parade and all these white people who are like not who are just exerting the the power and privilege that they have unfairly. Yeah, they get to do these. They get to make these rules. They do that because they're in a situation where they can. Where they can. But they don't. Yeah. They also don't have to. Yeah. You know, these referees 
they don't have to make those calls. They don't stand to lose anything. Right. By not making those calls, right. like which makes you really wonder, what are they doing this for? Well, they're not reading Paul. is what They are definitely not reading Paul. Yeah. Definitely not reading Paul. You know, I read another story this morning. A four-year-old black boy in North Texas was being asked to cut his hair. Um, he had he also had dread he also had locks, and you know the school told him they told him he either needed to cut his locks or his mother needed to dress him in a put him in a dress so that he could pass for a girl, thereby allowing him to keep his hair. Like that is what the school told him to do. Like so bizarre, and they're not obviously they're not the first parents to complain about this particular aspect of the dress code. But this yeah. is just more policing of black bodies and further of a four-year-old young man. Like, that's just uncalled for. Like, we don't need to be policing black people's bodies and their hair when that is just the way their hair grows. We're, in essence, trying to make them to abide white standards of respectability to make ourselves more comfortable or to make everybody else more comfortable. And it's it's not right. It's not fair. Um, but again, that is... That's just stuff within the last three of those stories just happened this past week. But there's a there's a reason Brecken Willis's story really stood out to me uh, that make that make this whole situation worse. And uh, one is that this isn't this this isn't her first this isn't her family's first run in with this particular issue or with this referee even. Um, apparently, her little sister was also publicly targeted by Blackstone at least once during the last school year over the same issue, the fit of her swimsuit. Both uh, Willis and her little sister are uh, curvier girls. At least that's how they describe themselves. And then uh, a second thing that made this whole situation a little more disgusting to me is that a rogue parent actually felt it appropriate to photograph Willis in her suit. And then, I mean, she did this, the parent did this without Willis's consent and then distributed these photos online in an effort in an effort to show evidence that the school's uh, swimming suits were were immodest. Now there's so much wrong with that. Like that is that that parent should be in jail. First off, like this is distribution of child pornography. That's that that's a child. She's a minor, and the fact that you took those pictures and then distributed them online of a child, like you should be locked up for child pornography. Like that's just. That's just disgusting. And that brings me to number three. Um, she should not be made to feel that there's something wrong with her body because some adults are made uncomfortable by it. Like if you have a, if you have a problem with it, then you, then you probably shouldn't look, you know, like I, what was the, and I think the whole point about dress codes is for, for certain like intentional, deliberate rebellion, she was just wearing the suit yes. that they gave her. Yeah. And it's probably there's probably a larger problem in that these suits are not cut for certain bodies the right way. Right. Which is another issue. Like things mm -hmm. are not designed for people with certain sizes and shapes. There's yeah. a whole bunch of sexism, sizeism, and racism all going on here. Big time. Big time. And and it's not her fault that her school issued uniform was cut in such a way that the act of swimming causes these problems. I mean, this is the type of thing you realize, oh, it's it's more statistically likely that this is an accident than she's willfully rebelling. Right, right. right. Um, and it also doesn't give her any unfair advantage, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the logical thing to do, the Paul-infused thing to do, the Christ-like thing to do would be to say, look, let's, let's look at this as to what it really is, mm -hmm. you know? She's competing. Let's make it a 
a level playing field for everyone, that's fine. Yeah, definitely. Um, this but, whole issue of shaming children over the way their bodies look, like this is not something children should have to deal with. And all too often, this is something yeah. that, uh, that, that a lot of young black women are senselessly dealing with. Because, you know, if we raise children with those insecurities, they could grow up to become president. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One like, of those kids is going to be president one day. Mm-hmm. We, we, we don't need to be giving people those kinds, that kind of trauma. Like, th- there's also a double standard here. Like I said, the high school gives this uniform to everybody. You know, the coach actually even said at, the, at this particular swim meet where this happened, she heard the referees talking about the immodesty, you know, about other girls showing too much skin, but those girls were white. The first time that the referee said anything to anybody about the immodesty of their suit, it happened to be a young black woman. And that just causes another issue. That's what like made this a race issue for me, um, was seeing that there was a clear double standard as to how this modesty rule was being enforced. And this isn't, this isn't hard to believe. We've seen this in various other places. We've seen this with Serena Williams. We've seen this with uh, female pop stars, with other uh, black female athletes. We've seen this unnecessary policing of their bodies, especially when they're winning. And that's just a huge problem and an, unne- an unnecessary burden we place on black women, an unnecessary burden that white folks will place on black women just because they dare exist in a way that makes them feel uncomfortable. And sometimes that way of existence is simply just being comfortable in their own skin. That is the biggest problem that I think these white folks have been having with Breck and Willis is that she was owning and she was comfortable in her own space and they didn't like it for whatever reason. I don't, I don't know what that reason was, but that is what I feel like has brought us here. Female student athletes are now more on guard, especially black and brown ones trying to make sure that their bodies aren't attracting undue attention from creepy, nosy, insecure adults instead of focusing on being healthy and performing at the highest levels. Uh, the Anchorage School District is moving, like thankfully they're moving to decertify Jill Blackstone and her decision to disqualify Brecken Willis was overturned. So that is a victory, but the damage has been done. And now, you know, all the girls on this swim team, all the girls across Anchorage, Alaska, anybody else who hears this story is going to be hyper-conscious of their bodies rather than focusing on performing at the highest levels, focusing on being healthy. We've already heard stories mm-hmm. of girls on this team who are trying to lose weight, who have stopped eating, in essence, to make sure that their bodies aren't drawing undue attention. Like, we should not, our girls should not be worrying about that kind of thing. They should not be worrying about creepy adults, insecure adults, worrying about their the way their bodies look or whatever. That is totally inappropriate. That is not what sh- we should be uh, focusing on. So, you know, like I said, the, the school district is, mur- is moving to decertify Jill Blackstone, but in the meantime, I am going to pray for her that she, one, gets some business because this is just pathetic, like to be coming after a young black woman just because her uniform experiences a very fixable malfunction. And uh, I'm also going to pray for her that she is able to deal with whatever insecurities or whatever issues she is dealing with that caused her to lash out in this particular way. Pray that she gets some repentance. Pray that she gets, I I don't know, whatever else she needs. She needs someone to help guide her through the New Testament. Someone to help guide her through the New Testament. Yeah. Hopefully she finds that as well. Help with whatever issues have caused her to punish a young black woman for simply existing comfortably in her space.
that is what I'm going to pray yeah. for for Jill. That's all I got to say about that. Okay, well, thank you for uh, for that. Um, Do you I'm, have a uh, anything? I have a a creating Christ like yes, change. Yes, creating Christ like change. What, what what is the thing for this week? So the thing for this week is something. This is a tool that I've given people to tell themselves when there's a um, when there's an incident like locally of homophobia, something like that. Okay. And one thing, or it doesn't have to be locally, even if it's a, a church leader, someone uh, across the internet, somewhere, anywhere. And what I tell people to say is this. I like to say that all homophobia is autobiography. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, well, what I don't mean is that everyone is closetedly gay. I mean, that's my, that's my dream come true, but <laughs> it's not going to come true. Yeah. Um, so what I mean by that is that whenever someone engages in homophobic behaviors or comments, that functions to support their sense of self in some way. Okay. For example, like this. If one, someone comes up to me and says, Derek, you're not gay. You're just a straight person with a willpower problem. And if you work hard, you can overcome it. What they're saying isn't about me. It's about them and like how they have overcome something in their life, their temptation or addiction or whatever. Okay. And they're just trying to be helpful in many cases by projecting that onto my situation, which is completely different. Okay. And what I've realized about this is, and I think I might be the first person ever to point this out, is that when you understand this, then you realize how resistant homophobia is to change because what I'm doing isn't just asking them to change something about me. I'm pulling the rug out of something that forms their sense of self, right? I see. And that's why, without understanding that, you don't understand how deeply homophobia is rooted. It's not that they want gay people to suffer. Very few people actually want gay people to suffer. Mm -hmm. What's going on is something deeper and, and more insidious, is that there's something inside them that that they have structured in such a way that then they impose it on to, to me. So you're saying, just to make sure I understand correctly, yeah. that homophobia or the root of their homophobia is a part of their identity, which is why it's so resistant. Because when you attack the right. homophobia in them, you're in essence attacking them as people. And, it, and, and I have to say that, that, that the thing that homophobia serves actually might do something good for them. Like in this case, right. if someone overcame their addiction... And that's their model by which they process all problems. And then they come to me. I can't rip that out from under them because that actually helped Because them. that worked for them. Or for example, what if someone, you know, made a really difficult decision in their life based on something they literally, how they literally interpreted the prophet to be saying something. Mm -hmm. For them, a testimony of the prophet's words is necessary for their s functioning. Okay. And it, and if I appear to rip that out from under them, it's it's no it, they're they're not saying what they're saying because they hate gay people. They're saying uh -huh. what they're saying because for them a particular obedience to a particular way of understanding the prophet has been necessary for them to navigate their life. Okay. And if I challenge that, I'm actually challenging something way bigger. Well, you're challenging them. I'm challenging something that that they needed to function. Right. 
And so what that does is it helps me feel it, take it so much less personally mm-hmm. because it's not about me anymore. Right. And it's not even about their particular desire to hurt gay people because that's not really the, the surface level. That's the effect of what they're doing, but they would never admit that that's their motivation. Mm. It's always something else like, oh, I want to be faithful to this model of, of authority or to this understanding of mental health. Or that's, uh, that's the same thing by saying that, that being gay is mentally ill. That tells me what they have struggled or maybe they have a loved one that struggled with mental illness and, and praying fixed it or something like that. Whatever model they're using is, is autobiography. And that's why I say all homophobia is autobiography because what that does is it releases me from the need to take it personally and it also gives me I you don't want me to be patient with oppressors, I know. I don't. But it gives me some degree of patience to say, look, here's actually what's going on with that person. Yeah. And it helps me strategize how I approach it because to just take it out from under them isn't gonna work. They're gonna resist it because okay. of how this functions in their life. So it's really all about them, not about me. And I I think that really changes how I I interact with people in community to make sure that I I choose what battles I want to choose that I don't provoke something I don't want to deal with and then I um, it helps me really change change my environment because then I realize look this is how I can actually reach this person and then when you unpack why why it is they're doing what it is and figure out what's the underlying things and have them what we really have to do is give them a healthier way of fulfilling the function that was served by the homophobia. All right. Which a lot of people don't take that detour. They'll just say, oh, stop being a homophobe because it's wrong and you're hurting gay people. If that's all it took. Which is easy to say. It's easy to say. But if that's all it took, (laughs) we wouldn't be here 40 years later, 50 years later after Stonewall. Yeah. We've been saying that. Yeah. And I think if we just take this detour, it actually, ironically, may, may serve better in the long run. What do you think of all these things? I'm it's sure you have some critiques of it, that, which is fair. I mean, that last thing sounds like work. Like, I'm just going to put oh, that out there. Oh, free emotional labor that I shouldn't be expected to do? Yeah, that's my only concern. And you know how I feel about free emotional labor. And I know how you feel about that. Like, if you have the wherewithal to bear with patience, that particular, I don't want to call it affliction, but that's the best word I yeah. have. So I'm going to call it an affliction. Then you do that, you know? Like, I, far be it for me to tell anybody how to battle their own oppression. But just, I, I can only speak for me personally. I am very adamantly against anybody who is a member of a marginalized group having to defend their humanity or trying to meet an oppressor halfway when that is not necessarily mm-hmm. their responsibility. Now, the only thing I wanted to highlight i suppose about that was just that last part sounds like a lot of work and that's neither a positive nor a negative observation it's just right and you don't have to choose to engage the person i'm not saying but what i'm doing is at least this framework lets you know what's really going on yes so you can make an informed choice of whether you want to engage that person or not Mm. knowing that there's this big iceberg underneath the iceberg you know there's a big bottom part to the iceberg that, yeah. that it's not just this little thing that you can touch and think you're okay yeah there's a big thing under there that you're, you're you can choose to take on or not but it's there um because all of these things are so necessary for some survival or functioning that's yeah. why it's so resistant and at first i thought all these people just hated gay people <laughs> but it's it's actually worse than that 
It's worse than that. It's it's the, it's, it's their functioning is predicated on my suffering, which is mm-hmm. actually worse yeah. than them just enjoying my suffering. Right. They're basically um, locked in. Because it's part of their identity. Yeah. A, a part of their identity, uh, an important part of their identity is based on your suffering. That's what it sounds like you're saying. And I think this is a root of, of a lot of what's going on in the church is a lot of people are like, well, I need to be faithful to the proclamation or the prophets or I need to be whatever which are all good things that have served them faithfully in their life and well. Yeah. yeah. And we have to name that. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I, I love and sustain our prophets as well. And we acknowledge that they receive revelation. Right. And, and I encourage them to receive as much revelation as they can. Mm-hmm. Right. As much revelation as we as a people will let them. And we may not be there yet, but that's kind of why I say all homophobia is autobiography, because when you look at what people are saying deep down, it's not really about me. Right. It's about them and it's about their structures that they have depended on and are in some sense addicted to and can't and have have attained a sense of dependence on. Yeah. In an unhealthy way. And so just knowing that frees you. In many ways. It's about to say, is that the practical application? Is to simply know that so that you can, I suppose, take a deeper breath or be able to relax a little bit when it comes right. to fighting your oppression? Is simply mm-hmm. acknowledging the ability to acknowledge, rather. Right. But, like, if you think about every one of these comparisons that people make, like, oh, it's like a birth defect, or oh, it's like, you know, this, you were born that way, it's like, oh, it's like a heart disease uh, whatever analogy they make tells more about them than it tells it doesn't tell anything about me at all okay because being gay isn't like a birth defect it isn't like an addiction it isn't like you know any of these other analogies that people make yeah. is isn't in like any of them the only thing that it could be like is being like like being straight yeah right that's the only that that's the closest and direct parallel it's not like any of these other hardships and people say, well, all people are born with trials and challenges. And you know what? Maybe they had to say that to themselves to overcome some disaster in their life that mm-hmm. was beyond their control. Or maybe and they just need to say that to feel better about your pain. Right. Well, fortunately for them, I don't I don't really sense pain on this issue. Your so. pain or your oppression, yeah. rather your dehumanization. Right, right. And I think there's uh, something there that keeps them from seeing us as fully human. Mm. As as bad as it sounds and as, as it's like I'm criticizing them, I'm actually saying, look, there's something built into the structure that keeps them from being able to make the choice to see me as fully human that, ha- that should have all the human rights and opportunities that we give every other human. Okay. The right to, to love, the opportunity to find a person that you match with and be together. That's just a basic part of what most people think is a, a right. basic human a, life. A, it's a birthright. We practically view right. it as our birthright. Right. And so that's uh, that's where we are. So think about that. <laughs> All homophobia is autobiography. All right. That's brilliant, Derek. Awesome. Yeah. All right. All right. See you later next week. Next week, everybody. Thank you for tuning in.